Hello and welcome back to a very special episode of Going Through the Motions with me, Callum. And me, Alex. How's it going, guys? The podcasting equivalent of a win away from home at Twickenham after 37 years. Yeah, that's right. The Calcutta Cup, it's coming home. What what do we say when these things happen? So we were chatting a little bit about our intro at the start, and we didn't think we'd start that way. But yeah. we, my goodness, we we feel very dismantled by that attack. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> I uh, I must admit that's uh, that's definitely raised the old COVID spirits. Yeah. I don't know about you, mate. Yeah, oh, 100%. It's such a, such a joy to watch. Such a, such a joy. And do you know, we also had an absolute joy to listen to, because as I said up top, this is a very special episode. We had a really special guest on, on this week yeah. on the podcast, and we had the composer Kenneth Lample on to talk mm. about the music that he composed for the sci-fi epic 2067 an australian kind of indie movie by seth larney who is probably most famous for being on the effects team of the matrix movies mm, actually yeah and he's kind of gone on to do his own personal science fiction movie and he got ken in to compose the score for it mm -hmm. and we kind of thought that we were going to get a special guest in in our usual way to you know talk through the movie talk through our favorite tracks and stuff but what we actually got was a really amazing in-depth look at this amazing musician's life. Oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. You're right. And, and you know, Ken has had the opportunity to learn under the greats such as John Williams. And some of the stories were absolutely wonderful. Oh, to, yeah. To learn amazing. About. Amazing. And I mean, learning no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And learning about the, the New York jazz scene in which he in which he grew up. Um, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. So I guess without further ado, shall we roll the tape? Yeah, enjoy, guys. So, hi, Ken. Thank you very much for for joining us on the show. It's uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic to have you. It is so so great to be here, and I'm so very excited to <laughs> chat with you guys on the other side of the world. <laughs> I was about to say. Now you're speaking to us from from Australia. How how how's it going over there? You're are you in Canberra? Are you? I'm in. I'm in. I'm. I actually work in Canberra. I'm the. I run the film and video game composition program at Australian mm. Na National University. And I live in Braidwood, which we call the bush. That's the country. <laughs> That's the country in Australia is called the bush. So I live about an hour outside on property. Fantastic. That that's awesome. But you but you don't have an Australian never. accent. <laughs> never, never. No, you've you've not picked no, up the no, accent. No, 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 no. I've, <laughs> I've kept awesome. my American accent. It's not quite like I'm from New York, so it's not. Hey, I'm from New York. You know, I don't have. The, I'm not a New Yorker, but I don't speak like that. But it is actually a New Jersey accent. Oh, I see. Okay, what's the difference between New York and a New Jersey accent? Is there any like little ticks or anything to pick up? Every other accent than New Jersey sounds weird. That's the difference. Uh, that, <laughs> I don't that's, know. That's it always is. that's always the case. <laughs> We 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 say, we say the same over here. So many different accents on a very small island. Yeah, comparatively speaking, over here. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever adopt the uh, Australian accent. I mean, I could, you know, sometimes you know, it's like, hey, good day, mate. No worries. <laughs> the dingo stole my nice. baby. You know. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so you you mentioned there, Ken. So you born in born in New York, born in the Bronx, was it? Born in the Bronx. Yep. 
fantastic yeah. and and so you you grew up how, how long did you live in new york for not not very long we uh the bronx is not the greatest place so uh, as soon as i was born my parents shipped off to uh trenton new jersey and so we lived down oh, okay. here yeah my dad got a job uh, at the psychiatric hospital here so he was uh doing that and so we didn't stay in new york very long but all my relatives are there but i did move back to new york when i went to the juilliard school and lived in manhattan right of course yeah and did you how did you find that coming back you know to, as as an adult coming back to new york uh, i guess from from being away for so long like what what was it was that like moving to the big cities uh, again <laughs> it, it was it was way i'll tell you living in manhattan is way better than the bronx i'll tell you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I got I got to live. I got to live. Look, I lived right at Lincoln Center because wow. I lived in the dormitories wow. at Juilliard. So I mean, it's the school is right at Lincoln Center. So from from my apartment, you know, which I shared with some other students, you look down on on. There's a big fountain, and there's Avery Fisher Hall, the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, the City Ballet is all down there, and you can see it. Yeah, it's all it's all it's all around like one one square yeah. almost Amazing. like one oh, complex. So it's, it was so incredible. I, I can't tell you. I mean, the, going to the Juilliard School was the very, very best thing ever. It's my absolute favorite, favorite place in the world. And it's, it's funny because bef every time I go there, I cry. So <laughs> even, even before I left for Australia four years ago, I went and I sat on the benches across from Juilliard with a little tear in my eye. It's an amazing, an amazing, amazing, amazing place just absolutely incredible yeah because for, for those of the listeners who aren't aren't aware of i can't i can't imagine there's that many of you but i think i would be forgiven for saying that juilliard is is the place that's just and especially considering all of those things around it that you yeah, just said what an amazing place to sort of immerse yourself in uh incredible it's just absolutely incredible it was it it was the first, I mean, it sounds strange because I think a lot of life is sort of finding your tribe. I mean, I think a lot of that you go through when you're in high school and in college and, you know, when you go to university and a lot of finding a major and things and your career is like fine. It's not just finding a, a job, but it's finding your tribe of people. So for me, you know, um, getting to Juilliard was really, when I was there, I was like, ah, oh, finally, these these are my people. You know what I mean? I mean, I was upset. I mean, I, I practiced yeah, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen uh, on the weekends, all day and night. You know, so to be around, and which is kind of a weird, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a weird thing to be putting that much time into something, and suddenly you're at a school where that, yeah, everybody's doing that. You know, it's like great, you know, and everybody's really, yeah, so the except, and your teachers have done that, so they uh, they really understand the obsession toward. Really, the, the obsession toward excellence, I think it was a wonderful place, which, you know, also for me, really contrasted because, you know, growing up in, in, in Trenton, New Jersey, you know, it's sort of an urban, you know, semi-suburban, urban environment. So that, you know, really bad, you know, not a good education system, a lot of, yeah, poverty and, you know, the things that go along with urban life. So it was, it was nice to finally escape that and then go to, you know, go to Juilliard. And and what what about your your time at Juilliard? I mean, you you obviously have have been able to grasp a huge amount of opportunities throughout your professional career. I mean, and and did, did what what kind of what kind of kicked off for you in terms of hey, I can do this and I can get into did did your sparks for music and scoring? Did your sparks for jazz music? Did your sparks for teaching? Like, does is that where a lot of those kind of flowers started to to plant and to to slowly blossom in your head? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, the, the I'll, I'll answer it slowly. The thing about <laughs> Juilliard that was also so important for me, and I'll work back. I'll work backwards, was because I didn't have any music lessons when I was young. Mm. I didn't have any music lessons till I went to university. My first university was Rutgers University, which was the state university in New Jersey, and I went there to study medicine, not music. Oh um, really? Wow! Wow! I didn't wow. Know that. Yeah, yeah. Because my parents, my parents were like, "We're not paying for music. We're not paying for a degree in music." So think mm -hmm. again in terms of what you want to study. And so also, I wasn't at you know that time in my life. I wasn't very good. I mean, my, you know, there was band in school where they just sort of gave you, handed you a saxophone and a book with the fingerings, and you know, you showed up and played, you know, once or twice a week in band. But it wasn't really lessons or learning anything about music other than they're just trying to keep – honestly, they're just about keeping kids out of trouble, you know what I mean? Yeah, more, yeah. More than, more than anything. So, um, you know, so what I did is I would just get my saxophone, and in Trenton, New Jersey, there was a big jazz scene there. And so when I was in high school, I would take my saxophone to the local jazz clubs and, you know – sit in with the bands and what kind of decade were we talking i mean what was the what was the jazz scene what was the jazz scene like is it this the sort of 70s and the the sort yeah, of time 80s, yeah, yeah, 80s, yeah. yeah it was sort of late late 70s early 80s I, I remember there was this great jazz club in trenton called joe's mill hill saloon in this horrible part of trenton horrible i mean Trent, trenton was the site of a lot of race riots like detroit and this is in the late 70s so this mm. is coming right off that um and so I remember I used to park in this bank parking lot and just sit in the car and wait till no one was on the street and then grab my saxophone and run into the club wow. <laughs> and run into the club. Wow. <laughs> and so so when I got there, there was a really, really great and a very supportive scene in, in, in Trenton. And so this is sort of late 70s, early 80s. Mm, mm. And, and yeah. the thing is, the, you know, my first love, my first musical love was jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was really. Essentially, you, you, Ken, you're, you're putting a, a very vi vivid image. Yeah in my head here of a movie that actually both of us watched a couple a couple of weeks ago of soul the new the new pixar movie about that kind of uh cl classroom kind of jazz jazz scene and yeah it's just making me making me think of that i'm not sure if you've <laughs> watched that, that no, watched that movie seen, yet i've seen i've seen the trail i've seen the trailers of but i haven't seen that movie but, oh. but i did see the scene where he's trying to teach the kids you know <laughs> I saw that scene where he's trying to teach the kids and no one's paying attention. That's exact. It was it was so funny because but they were so anti-education at my high school. You know, mm. I, I said to the band director, I said, I'd really love to learn music theory. Would you teach me? And he said, no. I uh, said, well, is there a chance oh. that maybe I could, I'd like to learn some other instruments, you know, other than the saxophone. Could I learn other instruments? No. Uh, I, I, I write a little bit of music. Do you think there was a chance that I could maybe write something for the band or the orchestra? No. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, it was that time. It was, you, you see, you guys are not of that, you, you guys are not of that generation of what it was. Um, the, the teachers that I was in school with were still from the 50s. They hadn't retired. All those teachers retired by the time you guys are in school. When I was in school, all those teachers were still there. I mean, the things that they could say, you can't imagine the things that they could say and do to you in school during that age. I once had a, I once had a Shakespeare class. I'll never forget this in high school. And, um, and so we were just talking about some aspects of Shakespeare, and I was giving the teacher a little bit of a hard time. And, you know, we're I never forget we we're talking about Othello. And uh, I was trying to make the case that he was actually the good guy. And it was actually, you know, mm. that, 
No, no. I was making the case that Yago was the good guy. It was just merely right. You know, okay, just, sure, you know, sure, yeah. Just kind of just a little repartee, as you're supposed to do. Just you know. And so the teacher slams his hand down on the desk and says, "Ken Lample, when you're 18 years old, you should get a big L tattooed on your forehead. Born loser. You are born to oh. lose. Oh, In front brutal. of the whole class." <laughs> With he, yeah, oh. big L, loser, loser, born loser. You were a born loser, and so I they should reinstate some of these. No, shouldn't they? They should reinstate some of these but teaching then, methods. So, so then, so, so then, so then, so then, what happens? The class just gasps and stares at me, and I gave him the finger. Oh, good on you. Dude, you leave me. I, I, I thought you leave me no choice to protect my honor. So I gave him the <laughs> finger and he sent me out to the, he threw me out of that classroom. <laughs> wow. But I still held, I still had my head, I still, yeah, yeah. I still held my head very, very high after that. Still, but anyway, but that was sort of, that was also the sort of generation where they just could care less about what, you know, and, and of course, the kind of school I was not, I didn't, wasn't brought up in, a, you know, any great school district, you know what I mean? So the teachers, some were okay, but most could care less. Music could care less. And then so, uh, you know, so most of my education was I grabbed my saxophone and went headed down to the jazz clubs in Trenton where they're unbelievably supportive. And because my, the, the revelation came, I was actually going to, I played saxophone in band, you know, for, you know, since like fourth grade. And I was actually going to give it up. And my parents brought me, I had a, a great uncle, my grandmother's brother was a well-known jazz pianist in New Orleans. So he, he was very, very old. So they, they took me down to see Uncle Irving, you know, he didn't play anymore, but he, they brought me down to New Orleans, you know, when I was probably 15, 14 or 15 or so. And that was the first time I'd never heard jazz, I had never really heard jazz before. And then to be on, um, just, just to be walking down, um, it just it was just street after street in New Orleans of jazz clubs, you know, with bebop in one club, it's Dixieland in the next club, it's modern jazz, it's funk in another club, it's R and B in the next club. Just to be walking down the streets of New Orleans, just hearing live jazz, it just yeah, wow. it just rocked it just it just rocked my it just ro absolutely rocked my world. And I remember it was interesting because it was the first time that I was sitting and staring at the saxophone player improvising and mm. suddenly realizing that he's making that up right now. <laughs> no, no, but it, it was a really big thing because when, you know, even, you know, on an instrument, you're yeah. just somebody putting music in front of you, but you don't think that somebody wrote that. It's just like it was always there, yeah. like all the great, all the great books and novels are, you know, what I mean, you don't really think that somebody wrote it. It's just always there. Do you know what I mean? All Shakespeare plays are always there. Faulkner was always there. The Bible was always there. You know what I mean? These things are always there. Mm. But it suddenly hit me. I was like, I'm witnessing him making up and creating music on the spot. And I was like, mm. where is that? I was like, where is that coming from? And I was so mm. absolutely mesmerized by witnessing the creation of music in front of me. It just, that was the trigger that got everything going. It just rocked my world. And my, so my first fascination wasn't really composition, but it was improvisation. So that's why it was jazz. But, but, but my lifelong love of music has always been in the creation of. But, but the idea, uh, you know, in that age, you don't think about composing, but you can see improvising is something you can get your head around. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see he's making that up. The idea of like, comp like Beethoven composing a symphony is so beyond 
anything you can conceive of. Watching an, a saxophonist improvise is, a, is was was the only thing I could actually conceive of in terms of creating music because my big lifelong passion and the thing that I'm absolutely obsessed by is where music comes from. And my whole mm. entire life is devoted to figuring out where it comes from. And it's so funny because I feel like even though I've had sort of the best music education available, I'm no closer to the answer than I was you know, when I was like 14 <laughs> or 15 years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'm Just when you think you've got it. Exactly. And I'm still as psyched and amazed by the great mystery of where music comes from as much as I did, you know, back in those days. And so once... You know, once once we came back from New Orleans, you know that that I started to go to jazz clubs, bring my saxophone, and I just and I still have just a very very deep deep love of jazz, and I'm so thankful now. Now, in, in hindsight, after yeah, after going to Juilliard, and I also you know studied in in Paris with uh, staff from the Paris Conservatory. So, in terms of classical mm. education, in terms of the pedigree, you know, I've come from a very very strong pedigree because I love pe education, mm. I love pedigree, and I wanted the best education, and I sought it out. Um, but I'm so glad that I was brought up in jazz because there's a different way of looking at music because my musical world was shaped through jazz and it always is continually shaped through jazz. And and I'm just glad because then then I saw, like say when I went to Juilliard, how it didn't have certain kind of hangups that other composers had or I didn't deal with certain kinds of issues that other composers had about, um, you know, the, the first thing, because the great, the great lesson, this is the great lesson of jazz, which I think is a great lesson of life. And this is the most valuable thing that I, that I learned from the jazz musicians. You know, where, where I'd grown up in Trenton, they don't, they, they, they never called, jazz musicians back in those days didn't call jazz jazz. Nobody called it jazz. They called it the music. And so you mm -hmm. just called it the music and everybody knew you were talking about. Um, mm. And so the, at, the, at the jazz clubs, is that the musicians didn't respect, you could be a great, a fabulous technical player and get no respect from them. How you earn respect from the jazz musicians is what we called being about the music. If you were about, it didn't matter, you could not be that good, but if you were about the music, I mean, you'd come to the club, you know, and that, they'd be like, man, that cat's about the, man, that cat, he's about the, come here, little yeah. man, come here, little white boy, come, come over here, man, that, cat, that cat's about the music, man, because they saw how much I loved it. I wasn't good at all. I never had lessons. I mean, I didn't know anything about chords, key signatures, so, you know, I'd stand up there and sit in and have no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know the melodies, and I was, like, in the wrong key, and the chord changes are going by. I mean, absolutely horrible, 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 and the thing about jazz that was so great is that the audience audience would clap harder for me because of the courage that it took to stand <laughs> up there than they would for the professional musicians. And so then you'd be terrible. And then the, then the, you know, the, then somebody would be one of the band members would be like, yeah, man, come back. Let me show you some stuff on the piano. Come over here. Now this is a C7 chord. And all right. So, and it goes to the F7. Okay. So go, go learn that. Go learn that for next time. And then you come back here. You know, so then I'd learn a little That's thing. Wonderful. Come back. I'll go learn the head to Billy's bounce. Go check that out and learn and come back next week. And so then oh, I come wow. back the next time and I had learned, you know, I wasn't, but, but the, the, the philosophy of being about the music has just, mm -hmm. is, mm. is in every fiber of, of my being, rather, regardless of whether, you know, now the, that music, I mean, at that time that music was jazz and now that music is film music, classical music, just the music that you love is mm. the, you know, is the music, but there was a certain sort of spiritual and cultural thing that, that, that. I mean, because jazz was sort of just also a lifestyle, you know what I mean? It was a way of looking mm. at the world. And, 
And so just the, the whole that, that whole mentality, that, that number one was really, really important being about the music. It's all about heart and not about how actually good mm-hmm. you play was really, really important. And also the thing I love so much, Jazz, is the reverence for the tradition. And see, what, what, mm. one of the things that, because it's so, it's so different nowadays, because back in the 70s and 80s, it was really waning. You know what I mean? This is before the big mm-hmm. renaissance, of, again, that we saw sort of during the late 80s, early 90s, where jazz came of age. I mean, this is, jazz was sort of really, really dying. And, and the, the reverence for the tradition. So when I, when I finally got to university and started taking lessons and actually practicing, you know, a lot, and this is something that even my students that I try to convey, but no one really understands. We practice, because we practice seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day, every day, because we respected the tradition. That's why we did it. Be- you, you practice because you are honoring something that was bigger than yourself. It wasn't about you getting mm-hmm. better but it was about you honoring that tradition and being good was a reflection of loving that tradition. And so you practice that much because you love the music and you love the tradition. And so, the, I mean, the, you know, my first loves were John Coltrane and Charlie Parker. My first jazz albums were John Coltrane mm-hmm. and Charlie Parker. And I used to, you know, sit and try to play along because how you learn jazz is, is oral skills. I mean, again, this is very different than it is now is how the old cats learned is they just, they just transcribed and memorized solos from the records. That's it. Really? That's, yeah. yeah, and so it was, it's very Amazing. much an oral tradition passed on that way, and that's also why the greats were so great. You know, that's why going, you know, from Duke Ellington to Lester Young and Dexter Gordon, all of them were great because they all learned through the oral tradition. You know, and it's and it's really interesting mm-hmm. as some you know, teachers in university, everything is much more about the written tradition now, and not so mm-hmm. much about the oral mm-hmm. tradition. And the oral tradition is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Because you develop your musical instincts and your musical vocabulary through oral traditions. You can't develop that through written traditions. And even, even classical music itself, in a lot of ways, was much more of an oral tradition back in the days of Beethoven, Bach, Mozart. There was a lot of improvisation back in those days. You know, what we, what we think of now as sort of the sacred piece, you know, the sacred Beethoven fifth piano concerto. You know what I mean? And we have to play it exactly as it's written in the condensas written out. I was reading the a couple months ago. I was reading the Beethoven letters, and he was talking about uh, that he was he was how mad his publisher was because he was performing the concerto, but he hadn't written it down yet. So you're thinking yeah. that every night with the orchestra, <laughs> he's improvising the entire piano concerto, and then one draft he decided, okay, this is what it's going to be, and he decided to write it down. But that whole the whole relationship be- between improvisation and composition, I think, is very very fascinating. It is very interesting, and I, and I do I do wish that that was taught more at even even the top music schools i i very much remember one of my undergraduate classes uh was about writing cadenzas for classical concertos <laughs> and we had to again write our own cadenzas for me as a violinist it was mozart's yep. uh concerto so i was playing the third violin concerto at the time and we had to compose or write our own cadenzas and there was at no time we, we we had classes where we had to sit down and they had to say right well this is what a cadenza is and you have to sort of bullet point get one of these things in and one of these things in and one of these things in and it felt quite 
clinical and the end result was something that sounded like a cadenza but you're not really sure how it got there <laughs> and you're yeah. not really sure how it got there and at the end of the day you you sit and you look at it and go is that is that me isn't the cadenza supposed to be an expression of the yeah. performer and not just like this clinical thing that you've just worked out yeah so i remember well, that... finding that quite frustrating well it's but actually you bring up a really really good point it's Music is vocabulary, and the way that vocabulary is learned is by it is by imitation, listening and imitation and emulation. Um, and and it's very interesting because we're in a state of music education where we don't do that. Because if you think about how you learn, and this is the one of the things that I see just with students across instruments, across composition, is a real lack of vocabulary. Meaning, you know, they they maybe they just but but that's exactly what you what you're pointing to is that. You, you understood the mechanics of some stuff, but you really didn't understand the vocabulary in, in a way that you could actually say something that you felt, you know, you know what I mean? That was sort of an authentic piece of music. And that's the thing about the oral tradition is that you're just using vocabulary because it's parallel. You're learning vocabulary the way you did as a kid, which is you listened to your parents, you imitated what they said. Then from there, you understood you know, because it's interesting that all all the grammar classes that you had were not until you were probably 12, yeah. 13, 14, Ken, where you learned that this is a prepositional phrase and the adverb, blah, 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 Ken, blah. Ken, I, I so my, but all the rules of grammer uh, I'm, I'm are coming all at a large intuitive part of this. I'm not a musician by trade, and obviously the, the two of you, uh, uh, <laughs> this is very much your bread and butter. It, so I'll, I'll ask the question is, that I'm sure that I was really keen to ask when we met before. But the same musically, but we don't apply the same thing musically, thinking that we should play interesting link between film should, score you know, composition and orchestra, uh, orchestra and, and so symphony orchestra pieces but i'm really to interested to understand how you connected your upbringing within the jazz roots and then how you transitioned into the symphony orchestra because I, I really want to want to understand what that process was like and kind of what, what came along with you know those sort of things you know so it's very it's a very very interesting thing the the acquiring of language when i'm just gonna i'm just gonna tell a little story Please do. Please. When I got to university, I was still I was studying medicine because, I, I, number one, I could not have gotten into a music school, any music school. I didn't know scales. I didn't know any nothing. I couldn't really sight read very well. Hmm. I could improvise a little bit. Not not really that. Yeah, I not really. I, but I but but <laughs> but I certainly wasn't anybody who like people are like. Oh man, he is so talented. You know what I mean? You know. Other than my okay. friends who were very supportive in high school, um, so you know, going into medicine was this was safe bet. I did well and I did well academically. So it was the very very first week at university, and I went walked to the music building and I heard the jazz band rehearse at the university. Now during those times, now we're just used to every university across the world. I mean, not across the world, but most universities have jazz programs. Back in the early 80s, there were only a few jazz programs in the in the United States. And the university that I was, because we're very close to New York City, um, we had a really, mm. really terrific, one of the best jazz programs in the country. I had no idea at the time because I was studying medicine. So I walked by and I heard the jazz band rehearse. And so I... Uh, I wait. I sat and I listened to them, and then you know when they had the break, I walked over to the director who was this everything you would think about is the stereotypic jazz musician, this old black guy, you know, with a gruff voice. Mm -hmm. And I walked up to him and I said, <laughs> um, "I said, is it is it too late to audition for the band?" And he looks at me and says, "Boy, 
what do you play? I said, I'm a, I'm a saxophone <laughs> player, sir. He looks me over. He said, what the F kind of saxophone player don't have a horn with him? Boy, go back to your room and get your horn. <laughs> and so I went back to my dorm room and I got my saxophone and, and, and I, you know, I sat down. And in, in that particular big band, normally big band has five saxophones, but he had two rows of saxophones. So I sat in the second row. Wow. And I played through the rest of the rehearsal and then the band was packing up and I said, I said, sir, I said, did, did I make the band? He looks at me. He said, boy, did I throw you out? Go register. <laughs> and so that, so that gentleman, Paul Jeffries was my first saxophone teacher. Now, Paul, Paul played with Mingus and Thelonious Monk. He knew John culture. Oh, oh, really? Paul was, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, incre- incre- I mean, incredible. The jazz program that we had at, R- at Rutgers was unbelievable. The the saxophone section the year before I went there all graduated and they went and became Lionel Hampton saxophone section. I mean, it was just absolutely really? incredible. And so, so then, so then I got a chance. If you were in the jazz band, then you got a chance to take lessons. So I'd never really taken lessons before. So I went to, I studied with Paul, and it was the kind of lesson where you'd go and you'd knock on the door. And he would he wouldn't show up again. This is this is times that you guys would not understand. You'd go, and most of the time he wouldn't be in his office during your lesson time. Now, occasionally you would knock on the door, and you would accidentally catch him in his office when you were supposed to have your lesson. And so you'd knock on the door, and he'd be like, "What?" And I said, uh, "Professor, th- this is my lesson time." And he would look at you like, "Ugh." All right, come in. <laughs> so you'd come in, and there's a bunch of other people sitting there, you know, and he's talking and hanging out. Boy, go come on, play this. And he puts his Charlie Parker solo on the stand, and then you go and start playing it, and you're, you know, fumbling through. No, 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 F sharp. F sharp. Do it. Start again. And he <laughs> resumes talking to this group of people. What? No, that that's not the right. Re- oh, oh. And he turns to the, he turns to the people in his office, and said, "I'm sorry, I got to go deal with this." And he looks at you with the most disgusted look. He takes out his saxophone and stands next to you, and then just alters your life the, the, the next the next wow. hour of the lesson is just absolutely life-changing now paul was from this really old school because still at the time i played in the band and, and the thing that i'm most thankful he's the person who's, who's probably had the very very most influence on me because his philosophy was everybody makes the band now that's that's a very very rare that's very very rare especially in musical institutions that everybody gets to participate because he knew the only way to have musicians get better is to play with better musicians. So everybody made the band, and the band was fantastic, unbelievable. I mean, guys in the band were already professional jazz musicians in New York, and so you're playing with the best of the yeah. best already. And so, wow. um, you know, and so he knew that's the only way to get better is playing by better people. And so I remember one lesson, I mean, that, that, first, that first semester, I was still studying medicine, and we would have jazz band rehearsal from seven till whenever, one or two in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays, whenever he felt like letting you out, you know. And then then mm-hmm. we'd have just saxophone, what we called sectional rehearsal, just the saxophones, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday all day. So, you know, we're getting time. It's like midterm exams, and I've got like organic chemistry and biology, which are really heavy, heavy classes. So in the middle, I've been rehearsing, mm-hmm. you know, Sunday afternoon, I've been rehearsing just all day Friday, Saturday. So I pack up my saxophone and get re- ready to go because I need to study. And he turns to me, he said, boy, where are you going? And I said, sir, I said, professor, I said, I'm, I'm not a music major. I've, I, tomorrow I've got major exams in my classes. I have to go and study. So he turns to the band, he said, 
Oh, he don't have to practice like the rest of us. Oh, <laughs> he's so much better. He doesn't need to. He don't need to be here like the rest of us need to be here. He said, boy, why don't you play your music for the rest of us? And he made me play down the entire songbook in front of the rest of the band. And, of course, and, of, wow. and of course, I was <laughs> scuffling through and making mistakes. And he turned to me and he said, boy, you better sit down. And I just sat back. And I sat back down. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I didn't, so Paul, Paul just absolutely changed everything. And from, from when I started studying with him, I mean, it was – you know, practicing. I, I never practiced less than seven hours a day. That was the minimum that I could look myself in the eye. And just the people that I was around school with were just amazing. And at that time, I started going into New York a lot because the great thing about the university, Rutgers, is there was a bus right on campus that went to New York, 45 minutes, right there. Wow. And so, I mean, the thing mm. is, I got a chance to know a lot of the, the, I don't know if you guys are, you know, jazz buffs, but I got a chance to know a lot of the great musicians like Art Blakey from Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. I knew Art. A lot of guys from my school played with him. Everybody I met, Elvin Jones, who played with Coltrane. Everybody, everybody mm. I got a chance to know and and, and meet. Um, so it was incredible just being around those people, listening to the stories they had about the greats, you know. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm John Coltrane. Obviously, I mean, he's he's someone that I, just, I, I, I can't help but I've got a, a lot of the, a lot of the sort of. I, I, I think I had some old mm-hmm. CDs as well of John Coltrane. A huge, huge fan of him. But I must admit, you know, jazz, jazz isn't something that that I haven't, I had the chance to fully explore because the, because I think there is an element of this, and maybe maybe you've kind of got a, your interpretation of this, but it's one of these areas of music that is so deep and it's so integrate integral with its roots that it's kind of it's quite hard for or someone who maybe likes jazz music but wants to learn more, you know, what, what would kind of be your advice for someone who kind of wants to get into that world a little bit more and kind of goes, you know, I know John Coltrane, mm-hmm. I know some of these staples, but I kind of want to, I guess, like go, drive a little bit deeper. Oh, that's, a, that's a really, really good question. I mean, look, there are various periods of jazz, and I think, I think, I think to do a little bit of research to find out the kind of jazz you like, because I think what people do is, I mean, because like uh, Dixieland jazz is very different than swing, which you dance to, which is very different from you know, bebop, which mm. is more art music or avant-garde jazz or pop jazz. That's more sort of like something like Kenny mm. G mm. would be. It's not really jazz. It's sort of like mm-hmm. pop music, but instrumental pop music. So it's hard because people might listen to something that's a little bit more abstract and say, oh, I don't like jazz, realizing there's just such a large history. And I, <laughs> and I think one of the things to remember, too, is for us in the U.S., it's a, jazz means something different than it does to the rest of the world. And I've certainly, I've been all around the world playing jazz and playing at international jazz festivals. And it's interesting to see how jazz is played differently in different countries. Um, but one of the things for us in the U.S. is jazz is the heart of all popular music. It, the heart, heart of, all po- all, of all popular music across the world is blues. Everything, everything mm-hmm. stems mm-hmm. from the blues. And it was blues which became jazz and, and R&B. And R and B, which then became rock with rock, and rock and roll, mm-hmm. because all the mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. all the if you're I, I I love I love 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 rock music, but if if you listen to any of the early rock bands, Rolling Rolling Stones for one, you know the, the, they yeah, listen to yeah. all the old blues musicians from the 30s and 40s, like Muddy Waters, and I mean the name Rolling Stones is the name mm-hmm. of a blues song. All of them, Led Zeppelin, all those bands, Aerosmith, all the mm. early rock bands. We're all started out as blues bands, which so it's all all rooted in jazz. And same with 
honking on a honking on a bubble yeah. is one of my most favorite <laughs> albums as well with Aerosmith. Yeah. You know, I just like I got a, I got a Steve Tyler I got a Steve Tyler harmonica because I oh, loved it so awesome. much. And I used to yeah, see yeah. and if yeah, me- if I memory serves me as well, yeah. Cam, you used to tie a scarf around your mic stand as well, just like <laughs> it as well. <laughs> I'm a big fan of big fan of Well, that actually, stuff, actually, if you're a Steve Tyler fan, um, on on Oprah Winfrey's podcast, she does a brilliant interview with him. It's the best. It's oh, the excellent. very best interview with him that I've ever seen because it's actually a yeah oh, yeah. Wonderful. It's actually a very very thoughtful because he's not he's not being the persona of Steve Tyler. You know, mm. he's just being him. He's being mm, himself mm. and honest about his life and what it was like being on the road while having a fam. Uh, brilliant on, on Oprah's podcast. It's really, really excellent. I'm not a musician by trade. And obviously the, the two of you, uh, <laughs> this is very much your bread and butter. So I'll, I'll ask the question that I'm sure that I, I was really keen to ask when we, we met before. And that's, um, I can see the, the really interesting link between film score composition and orchestra, uh, orchestra and sort of symphony orchestra pieces. But I'm really interested to understand how you connected the, your upbringing within the jazz roots and then how you transitioned into the symphony orchestra. Because I, I really want to, want to understand w- what mm-hmm. that process was like and kind of what, what came along with that. My transition into the world of classical music. Um, so by the time I reached sort of my my last year university, my fourth year, I was playing professionally in New York as a jazz musician. I, I got a gig with a really well-known jazz drummer named Chico Hamilton. Now, Chico played with Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, he's mm. the who's who of jazz. And so I was playing with him. So, you know, one of my last classes of the day was music history, which you can imagine I hated because it was all classical music history. I could care <laughs> less about classical music. And so, you know, I'd be sitting in <laughs> class and because right, right across the news building was the bus to New York. So I'd be sitting there with my, you know, with my saxophone and my tuxedo in a bag ready to go to New York to go play. And so I'm sitting in. So last semester, senior year of, of um, university, I'm sitting in music history class and the teacher puts on a piece by uh, the composer Richard Strauss. And that's, you know, for those listeners, that's the big, you know, from Zarathustra from, from, from 2001. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's yeah, Strauss. Yeah. So put on a piece by Strauss called Death and Transfiguration. And when okay. I heard that piece. Look at Alex's when face. When <laughs> I heard that piece, Amazing. that piece changed my life. Absolutely. It was Wonderful. the most incredible thing I'd ever heard. And one of the things you have to understand for a jazz musician, you know, and it, it's very, the late romantic harmonies of Strauss and Mahler were something that were, are, are part of what jazz is. And so when, when, when he turned on this piece, I could hear what the harmonies were by ear. And I was like, oh my God, there's this amazing moment, you know, at, at the end of the piece with this big transformation. I was like, and so in the middle of class, I stood up, I was like, that's awesome. It's the five of five over the one pedal. Then it goes four minor four and you've got that. <laughs> then there's the diminished chord of four that it resolves back to the... And so my life, <laughs> listening to hearing Strauss for the first time, my life changed just in that moment that the world of jazz, which was everything, became this small little world which orbited around the world of, of, of Strauss, Wagner, Mahler, Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky. And I mm. absolutely fell in love. And in that moment, I, I, I said, I don't want to play jazz anymore. What, what you just played, I want to do that. Wow. I don't know, wow. I don't know how to yeah. do that, but I want to go do that. And so, um, so what I figured out at that time is you needed to learn how to play piano to do that. 
to play that, yeah. to, to be able to write like that. Mm-hmm. So last senior year of, of college, I started studying piano for the first time. And then I was like, okay, I want to be a classical composer now. Well, you're already, I mean, you're 20, I was 21 at the time and quite a good jazz musician. And it's a little late, you know? So then I said, okay, I want to, I want to go. So I went to the Manhattan School of Music and inquired about their graduate program. And I met with the head of the, the graduate composition program, the Manhattan School of Music. And I said, I'm, you know, very interested in coming to study your master's program. She said, great. She said, uh, can I see your portfolio? And I said, wow. I said, mm-hmm. what? I don't have a portfolio. She said, how do you expect to get in without a portfolio of, of compositions? And I said, well, if I could already do this, why would I want to come to school then? She yeah. said, you should go to our jazz program. And I said, I'm a professional. I make a living already doing that. I wouldn't be. you know so it never made sense you know that whole that whole university thing never made sense and so the only place Mm -hmm. that would even let I so I had I took a year off and decided that I was just going to study classical music so I took piano lessons and I figured you know it's just like jazz I I was I was was on the seven eight nine ten hour ten hour day routine so I was like I'll just not practice I'll put that into piano and studying (laughs) scores so, so what I did, I was like, it's probably the same as playing jazz. I got recordings of Mozart symphonies as cassettes, and I and I put it in the cassette recorder, and then I went to the piano and I transcribed. And so, so wow. I transcribed symphonies and string quartets, and then, and then a friend of mine was like, "Dude, there's a music library that this is already done. There's scores. Yeah. <laughs> there's a music library. You don't need to do that." And so I was like, "Oh, there's scores. Great." And so I took a year, and look, the only place that would have me back on the graduate level was the same university that I went. Rutgers, because I was a good student there. And so barely, like I only had two pieces. I only wrote two pieces of classical music and they let me in, which were of course terrible. But the same, I just practiced and worked and stu- but I was I was always a voracious studier of music, obsessive studier, you know, <laughs> and 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 then I had a great composition teacher at Rutgers named Charles Warnin, who Warnin won the Pulitzer Prize. And he was the youngest composer to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. And, right. But it, but it, the, mm. in those times you had to write modern music. You couldn't. I wanted to write romantic sounding music. You know what I mean? And he's he mm-hmm, and and, mm-hmm. and you they wouldn't let you into university writing that. You had to write avant garde music. So I so I started writing avant garde music, and that's what brought me to you know when I finished my masters, I really really sort of just loved it so much. But I knew the education, the quality of my education could be better. So then I went to this program in France called the American Conservatory in Fontainebleau. And what that program is, mm-hmm. that was a program instituted after the First World War because at that time there were no, there were very few conservatories in America. So it was mm-hmm. so the French government, as a sort of artistic gesture of friendship for you know American support in the war, opened up a con- special conservatory of music in English where American students could come and study. They opened up a school, oh, wow. a school of music and a school of architecture. Yeah. And, oh, I had no amazing. idea that existed. Oh, it's amazing. So Fontainebleau is a is a chateau that was built during the Renaissance. It's like a mini Versailles. So when you oh, went wow. to Fontainebleau, it's like you're walking through the gardens of Versailles and like you go to your music building while all the tourists are there looking at the Rodin sculptures in the gardens and you go to your classes. And it just and it was so cool because Fontainebleau, the first director of that conservatory was Ravel. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. So you're, you're, wow. So it was my it was my first taste of history where you're like, I'm th- I'm walking through the halls. I'm like, Ravel was here. Stravinsky was here. Poulenc wow, was yeah. here. You know, I mean, all all those guys. There was even a, pia- a piano teacher, um, Madame Cassidy Sue, who's who 
whose father premiered the Ravel Piano Concerto. She knew she knew Ravel. That's mad. Ravel used to come to her house. I mean, it's so the, the the connection to the history. But again, going back to the love of history, the connection to the history there was so absolutely profound. And you know, the the staff, you know, were members of the Paris Conservatory or the Ecole Normale, which is the other conservatory. So it was just it just Fontainebleau just absolutely did, rocked. Did my you world. find it? Did you find it? there was a very different energy then there because obviously that it that comes from a very different musical tradition than you know all the jazz that you you've absorbed up until this point and suddenly you've you're in this um eurocentric kind of world where you've got all this history of yeah. as you say Ravel and Stravinsky and all of the, those guys yeah, it was it was a it was there are things I loved about it. I loved it. I don't get me wrong, I just loved it. I love the I love the connection to history that they all had, you know. Um but there's a certain way that it goes down in Europe, which is the teachers talk and you say and as a student you are quiet. And you don't even ask, you just sit there. And then this <laughs> and so I was not I was not used to that. I was used to my teacher, we'd have to argue with him all the like yeah. you'd bring a piece into your composition <laughs> lesson and he would tear it to shreds, but you had to he always wanted you to debate with him. And so I thought it was the same in Europe. So then, you know, how how it worked is the you know, the the composer, the famous European composer would come in and then you, the, the students, there'd be like 15 or 20 of you sitting there. And then one by one students would present pieces which he would play on the piano and tear to shreds in front of everyone. And then you said thank mm. you for the opportunity of being torn to shreds and humiliated in front of the group. That's the way that it goes there. So they were they weren't used to that. I was like talking back and arguing and about about things that I had incredibly valid points about. I mean, it wasn't just arguing for the sake of mm. argument. I was just like, well, you know, he said you can't do this, that, and that. In the in, and I said, well, Stravinsky does that in the you know can't the Requiem Canticles in the second movement. He does, you know. So they every time he mm. said no, I, I was citing pieces that <laughs> that those things. So I mean, I did. They didn't like it, but I kind of, but it, it did kind of work because then they get a kind of a respect for you. Now, the the most important part of Fontainebleau, there was a woman, a famous pedagogue who taught there named Nadia Boulanger. Now, Boulanger was the teacher mm -hmm. of all the great American composers like Aaron Copeland, William Schumann. They everybody went, even Philip Glass. Everybody went to Fontainebleau to study with Boulanger. She didn't teach composition; she taught. Um, like sightseeing, ear training, keyboard harmony, analysis, mm. like the fundamental skills. So the the Boulanger mm -hmm. tradition was the most important thing that I got because all of the students there, the teachers were all part of that tradition, which is a really important part of the foundation of, of classical music. And one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Juilliard was to continue because uh, the, the Boulanger tradition in um, – in, in ear training and sight singing. And it's like solfeging with solfege syllables and stuff like that. It's mm -hmm, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And you, you clearly, um, I mean, you, you clearly did very well in this environment because you won a number of awards there. I've just got sort of out here. So you won the Young, the young Composers Award. Uh, and then you also won the, the is yeah. it Pre-Ravel as yeah. well that you, that, you, that you won there. Can you, can you talk a little bit about those? Because I'd be interested to understand, you know, because that, that, that really solidifies your statement of going I'm, i've gone from a jazz musician into being yeah. now a, a, you know into the synth the world of symphony orchestra and that that must have been quite a, a, a i guess a confirming it was. a confirming it was. Uh, it was it was look starting classical music at 21 that's super you thought i thought starting jazz at 17 or 18 was tough 
starting classical mm. music at 21, 22 is, I mean, that's a much more daunting, you know, that was really daunting. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, so I went to Fontainebleau for two, I studied for two summers. And, but I'm, I'm such an obsessive compulsive person. I, I, there was a woman there, Madame Dua, who was one of Boulanger's students. And she taught all those ear training, theory, sight singing, keyboard harmony. I took every, I placed into the top levels of all the classes, but I took every level of every mm. class every day wow. because I just was, mm. I just wanted to learn more and more and more. And so my second year, it was a really huge, huge honor my second year when I was there to win the Pre-Ravel is, you know, one of the big awards from the conservatory because yeah. it was the first time that somebody gave me a pat on the back, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was, yeah. this is the great irony. I get the Pre-Ravel, then I go back. You know, then I, when I go back home, my sister, who was six years younger than me, was just graduating high school. With and the end at the high school graduation, the band plays with my old band director. You know, from high school. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? And so I just won the pre-revel, and I went back, and um, you know, his name was Mr. Snyder, and I said, "Hey, you know, I said, hey, Mr. Snyder, I said I was just, you know, you'd be glad to hear I was, I was, I'm studying music, and I was, I just returned from France where I was studying." And he looked at me and he said, "Huh?" He said. I never thought you were one of the talented ones. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, That's so, brilliant. So anyway, it was, it was Fontainebleau was the connection that then I, w- I really wanted to go to the Juilliard school because then by, by that time, mm. then I'd taken a couple years, I took a couple years off and I was sort of 27, 28, but in the Juilliard audition was really, really brutal. I, I prepped for two years for that audition. I wanted wow. to, I wanted to go mm. in there and, just be that had never seen anything like this before, like just immaculate. And so uh, I prepared two years. I took private lessons in ear training, all everything that was going to get me ready for it. And so, prob- I would say the the my proudest day of my life is when uh, the letter after I applied and and the interview was brutal. The tests were just it was it was a day of hell there. Worst probably the worst one of the worst mm. days of my entire life. They were so brutal, so 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 brutal. Um, I mean, they have to be for the standards there. And so then back mm-hmm. in those days, mm-hmm. we used to get letters from universities, not emails. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I opened mm-hmm. up the letter and, um, you know, that time I was living on my own. And so not only did I get in, did I get in, but they gave me a, sco- a full scholarship to be there. That's fantastic. Which, wow. which was as, as the kid with no music lessons, you know, come into the game so late, that was, that was probably, that's my proudest moment of life my proudest 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 moment and that's also one of the things that i love about the school that much is it was like a it's like the pat on the back come on in you know what i mean Mm, come on mm. in and that's and i'm telling you they to this day have never had a happier student than me there never i was (laughs) i can believe it i was so i mean i was so smile i mean i still am i loved everything i couldn't wait to go to class i never missed class ever i mean i I was the crazy student Mm -hmm. who they'd assign homework and i would do twice whatever was assigned you know i mean i was just like (laughs) you know what i mean that 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 sort of thing i loved it there and then and then when i when i then in four years when i graduated they invited me to be on the staff so then just to be a you know just to be a staff member there um, was just just incredible. Now I do want to I do want to talk about your 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 work in in teaching and stuff because obviously because that's a huge part of your life. But we uh, obviously we 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 would be we'd be doing a, a disjustice to you if we didn't 
take an opportunity to really get into the film scoring because yes. that is obviously a huge chapter of your life huge. and I think that's you know that's obviously where so so for the listeners um, you know that's kind of how how going through the motions and, and Ken kind of came across each other because obviously with your with your new film that's come out I think let's let's start you know let's start through the history of of uh, of your film your film scoring because um, I because I'd love to kind of hear where where that came from sure. what what was it that that kind of that, that kind of set that bug away and then and then and what was that journey like for yeah, you Yeah, absolutely it actually start it starts right at juilliard that was the beginning of it um two things happened i was in when i was at juilliard i, I was in school with another composer who, who was a very good friend named teddy shapiro i don't know if you know i mean teddy did uh blades of glory old school uh marley and me okay. all the ben stiller okay. films the will he did a lot of the will farrell movies so Teddy and Teddy and I were in school together, and uh, at that time, in fact, I played on some of Teddy's early scores because he. There's a very very good film school mm. at NYU, New York University, which is sort of downtown from Juilliard, and so he had filmmaker friends, and he was doing you know short films down there, and you know, sure, and sure. then and then sort of at this at the same time is um, I'd gotten a, a fellowship to go to a music festival called the Tanglewood Music Festival in, in um, outside of Boston. Now, what Tanglewood is is a big mm. classical music festival, and it's the summer home of the Boston Symphony. So it's basically concerts mm. every night of the who's who of classical music. The Boston Symphony is playing twice a week. And so it's really cool because the program is it's concerts, but they accept one orchestra's worth of musicians to study with the Boston Symphony and five composers. So I was Yeah, it's a big wish list of mine. I'm not gonna, oh, not gonna lie. Tanglewood <laughs> was amazing. And so then so then I, I, I got accepted. And one of the reasons I applied is one of the composers we were to work with was John Williams. And I thought, I mean, I love John Williams. I'm I mean, I saw Star Wars in the theater as a kid, you know, Indiana Jones in the theater, yeah. you know, <laughs> E.T. in the theater, close encounters in the theater, you know. So I was a huge I actually owned disco Star Wars on vinyl. Wow. I don't know if you know. Yeah, oh, really? Miko, Miko came out, which there was, and and people, a lot of people don't know it, but there's actually a disco Close Encounters as well. That's not as really. Well known I had as no it. idea yes. that existed. Yes, there's. So you can find that on YouTube. Anyway, so you know, I was all. I mean, I love, I love going to music, but the whole time it's it's interesting because across from Juilliard, I mean, Juilliard's right at Lincoln Center, so you have all the great, you know, performing arts houses, but there's also a giant theater, and I'd go to the movies multiple times a week. Mm. And so I was really, mm -hmm. I'd go to the movies all the time, but the idea of film scoring never quite put itself together. Even, even though at the time I started moving from writing avant-garde music to writing romantic orchestra music and see back in those days, I mean, like my, my own, my own composition teacher would make fun of me and he would say, Oh my boy, you would make millions with this in Hollywood. But that was a put, that's a put down. <laughs> so film music was something that was really looked down upon. And also at the same time, it was a, it was a certain era where there were Hollywood composers who didn't read music, who hired conservatory trained musicians, you know, like myself to do all the work and, and, and get no credit for it. So I was very skeptical, very, very mm -hmm. skeptical about, about it. And so I certainly loved John Williams music and the, but I, I went in sort of skeptical I, with love and skepticism at the same time. What really fascinates me about the fact that you met and studied with John Williams is the fact, as, as I as I understand it, he was also he also has a jazz background. Yeah. Does does he not? Yeah, he's, as yeah. uh, he's yeah. a ja jazz pianist uh, first and foremost in early in his early life as a Absolutely. session pianist. If I have that, if I have that yeah. right. So is that something yeah. that you kind of connected over? 
Absolutely. And also, many people don't know, but he, he went, he has a master's degree in classical piano from Juilliard. Wow. Yeah, yeah, oh, he went really? to Juilliard as well. So, so I felt like, I, I didn't know yeah. that until he and I chatted about it when I told him that I was teaching at Juilliard at the time. It's like, oh, yeah, I went there and we were, he was just talking about who he studied with and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so wow. I, I did feel a wow. kinship and you can actually, I could hear it. One of the things I loved about his music is I could hear it. I could, you can, I can hear the, the jazz influence is not, it's a subtle thing. It's in his chord voicings. It's it's more apparent in the movies of the seventies, especially like in E.T. in okay. scores like E.T. a little mm. bit less so in Star Wars, but a lot of the bitonality and things like that come from a lot of the rhythmic intensity. Rhythmic intensity comes from jazz, but you can hear a lot of jazz, especially in the E.T. score. There's a lot of you know dominant seventh flat fifths and things like all kinds of altered chords that make it sort of the, the magical Disney sound is, is jazz chord voicings. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. That's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a great observation actually. Yeah. I never, and, yeah. and what was, what was the, what was the experience like working with John Williams? So, cause, cause when we, uh, we had a chance to chat before and you, you were saying that, you know, you had, you had a lot of personal tuition mm-hmm. from him. He, he kind of looked through your work yeah. and stuff and, and, and what, what was that experience like it for you? It was incredible. I mean, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, just, just the fact mm-hmm. when, our, when our first seminar started and there's five of us in him in one room, in a little room together, just the fact that he acknowledged my existence for two hours was just, I, I could, you know, we were breathing the same air. I was like, that's enough. I could die happy. It's just the fact he, I was acknowledged. John Williams acknowledged my existence. That's all I need to know. But I'll yeah, tell you yeah. that, Alex, that oh, would do right, that Alex, absolutely. 100%. 100%. <laughs> that was good enough. But I, the thing that I could tell you is you can't imagine how good he really is. This is the mm. this is the thing that I want to emphasize, you know, you know, because certainly at the time, you know, having gone to Juilliard, studied in France, teaching at Juilliard, I was around the best of the best in terms of musicianship. And so, you know, in my as one does in their younger days, I might have had a little bit of an attitude like like you got to have dude, you got to have a lot of game if you want to impress me. So the first so the first uh, session with John, because he's a very quiet person. He comes in and says, look, he said, I'm not a teacher. I've never studied this. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put on movies that I've scored and just tell you what I see when I watch movies. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Um, And um, because I thought it was interesting because I also studied psychology. My big love other than music is psychology and philosophy. I love a lot. And so Mm, I thought, oh, that sounds sounds interesting. And so he puts on, I'll never forget, Mm. he puts on the scene from Jaws where they're on the boat and they sight the shark for the first time. And then they're scrambling sure. to, to there's barrels and they're trying to hook that onto the harpoon. And the idea is they shoot the shark and the barrels are going to keep the shark close to the, to the top of the mm, water so they mm. can keep shooting it. But the shark is so strong, it keeps pulling the barrels under the water. And so he just puts on about five minutes. And then what came out of his mouth rocked my world. He launched into... Jungian archetypes of the collective unconscious, the symbolic nature of the hero, the transformation of the hero figure over time, the symbolism of the shark, you know, the journey of the hero. I mean, it was literary theory, Jungian psychology, then had the narrative development of the film, the pacing, just every, it was like all the loves of my life. And it was, it was literally like the heavens open up and the light shined and the celestial choirs began to sing. It was the first uniting of all the loves that I have. Cause I have a very, very deep love of psychology, especially of Jung. And I've read a lot of Jung. And so mm. he just connected all the dots in a way. And then, then, but also what I saw is part of what makes him so great is what he sees. 
And this is something that's film mm-hmm. composed. Like we think when we see film music is like film does X, you do X in the music. Film does Y, you do Y in the music. That that what he could see in the film about the, I mean, when he started talking about the transformation of the hero figure and that, and, and how that being at the heart of all great mythology is a transformation of the hero and, and the symbolism of all, it was just the symbolism of the shark as fate, as the inevitable, and just, uh, just absolutely, just absolutely rocked my world. I was, that was the moment that I was hooked on film scoring right there. Wow. And so where and so from from that moment on, how did you how did you kind of act on it? What was your impulses? Did you kind of follow directly your impulses? Did you or did you kind of go, well, I, I'm going to start doing this? And and obviously you, you've had a you know, opportunity to, to, to be involved with a huge amount mm-hmm. of films and stuff. So how, how, how did you break into that world and kind of, I guess, assert yourself in, in that role? Um, I had already gone to the movies a lot. I had a, I already had a great sense of uh, picture to music. Because I went, to, I went to the music movies all the time. I'd seen thousands and thousands of movies. Mm. The other thing is I work when I was in, in my master's degree, I work as a piano accompanist for theater and ballet. Mm-hmm. Not having anything to do with film scoring, but, but playing for probably five or six years every day. I mean, my class, I, I play for eight hours a day just accompanying improvisational theater. And so, you know, my job and why I got the job is because I could improvise. I wasn't, I was technically not mm-hmm. great, but... Uh, I could play in a lot of different styles. So it was, you know, the teacher would come over, give give us a Bach chorale very slowly. So then I'd play a style in the Bach. She's like, okay, add some inner voices. So I'd start adding some arpeggio. She's like, great. Now segue it into more of a Chopin kind of waltz. So I'd segue it into a waltz. And then the, <laughs> and the actors were responding. She's like, okay, great. Build, build. Now we're going to go into a boogie woogie. Boom. Boogie woogie left it in. Wow. And so then it was jazz. And then, and then it was like, okay, slow it down. Bring us to a slow adagio for strings now. Some beautiful. Okay. So that's all it was. I mean, for five, six years, it was all improvised piano, watching watching movement. So a lot of, and also, mm. you know, doing ballet classes. So I think a, a lot of that gave me a lot of, uh, some, some natural instinct and ability to how music should go with the, with the visual image. There's actually one last, I do have one last John Williams story before I continue on. Oh, please oh, do. So, please. <laughs> so this is, I'm going back to the, you can't imagine how good he, this, and this is so, this is so important for the listeners to know how good he is because there's also a lot of John Williams hating that goes on. So just the thing, the first thing I, I filter all is, that out, Ken. Okay, I don't good. listen to it. <laughs> good. I didn't even know that existed. Good, good. Okay. So the first thing is that there's criticism that aspects of Star Wars sounds like standard symphonic repertoire that the Imperial March sounds like holds the planets. So I'm going to, yeah, so I'm going to dispel, I'm going to debunk all that, okay? This is what, coming from John's mouth himself, originally they were not going to have an original score to Star Wars. They were going to use all pre-existing pieces of classical music. That the idea of having original music came secondarily as a recommendation from Steven Spielberg. So they'd already put in many great war horses of classical music as part of the film. So that's why some of it sounds like some of the great pieces of classical literature, because that was, that was the job. That's the, that was the original temp score that they were actually going to use mm-hmm. for the original score. So that, that's, that's number one. So number two is I come to my lesson with him and I was scoring a scene from a movie called Empire of the Sun. And so I come to my lesson with my full big orchestra score, you know, 25 staves deep, and there's no piano. Because I wanted to play my score. 
And I said, John, I said, I'm really bummed out. I said, I, I wanted to play you my score, but we don't have a piano here. And he says, oh, I don't need a piano. So he grabs the score from my hand. Back in those days, we just scored a VHS tape. So he puts the VHS tape in, pushes play, looks at the tempo marking of the score. Not only does he have perfect pitch, he's got perfect tempo. He starts beating, while the, while the video's playing, beating back and singing through all the parts of the orchestral score. Oh, I love it, Ken, that viola part. Oh, should be F sharp in the second flute part. Oh, missing dynamic marking in the bass trombone. He sang through the entire score in time to the, vi to the movie, pointing out all the mistakes in the score the first time around. It was wow. the Goodness. most impressive display of musicianship that I'd ever seen in my life. That, that's that's that, that's that's mad does he yeah. just like when 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 producers say do, do do you want a click track does he just go no you're all right i don't know i don't know <laughs> i mean the guys i mean even for that even because he was i mean I, of course i i was always asking him questions and him telling stories and even the the do you know the, the theme to close encounters da 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 dum mm -hmm. that he told me he wrote 200 of them for Spielberg. Wow. 200 wow. before they settled on that Goodness. one. Wow. Yeah. So he's a hard working, he's a very, very hard working guy. Well, yeah. I mean, he's still, he, he, he's still active. He's not officially yeah. retired yet. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, look, it was just his skill level, just in both what he could see in the picture and what he can do musically are just. Un I mean, it's it's savant-like, you know. I mean, just absolutely unbelievable. So, actually, do you know something is quite something that I never asked before, and I'd be interested. It'd be worth having a quick two minutes on. I always I wanted to ask about your experience on. I saw you did the Pokemon movie, or you were attached to that yeah, for a yeah, little yeah. bit. Do you know the reason why? Is because because Alex and I will tell you that we 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 cried at that movie. Like that was that caught yeah. that caught us. That was our generation. Um, uh, yeah, you, can course. you talk a little bit about that the Pokemon was, movie? Because that's so it's a interesting. Funny, funny, funny thing. Uh, so I'm now, so now I'm interested in doing films, and uh, I'm doing some student films at NYU. Um, and so then there was a, there was a woman that I was teaching with at Juilliard, who w also did film. She was a film composer, and I said to her, I said, "Look, um, you know, she was a bit older than me at the time." I said, "I'm really interested in getting into film. You know." If you can use me in any way, I can orchestrate, I can, you know, whatever. I, even if I'll just sit there quietly, I say, I'd love to do, you know, to learn from you if there's something that I can do to help you, you know, in your film composing. She said, oh, great. I'll, I'll definitely think about it. So, you know, a couple months later, she said, ah, I have something. She said, I got the call to do some kids movie like uh, i don't know pokey man or something she said i don't and she says to me i don't really want to do it can you do it for me and i'm thinking she really? doesn't have kids and at the time i had a girlfriend who had who had nephews so i knew that pokemon was about mm -hmm. to be huge this was this was before it hit the mm -hmm. scene but all the kids were trading cards i was like right okay she mm -hmm. has no idea and she's handing me the pokemon movie <laughs> so i said i said to her i said well i said as a favor, I said, as a favor, I'll do this this one time, but you owe me one. She said, thank you. That's really? amazing. Because I, <laughs> I imagine in, 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 in the decades before, but before now, which is obviously franchise, franchises everywhere, mm -hmm. Pokemon was one of those franchises, one of the really big brands. Yep. 
this is before because this this is when kids were just dealing cards. There were this is before there was any movies, any television series. But I knew all the kids had cards. All the mm-hmm. all kids had mm-hmm. Pokemon cards. I knew this was going to be big, and it was funny because it was a real. Uh, it was the first taste of what film would be like. So what so what happens is so then, basically like ten composers show up at the producer, you know. And so the producer's like, okay, here's our situation. Um, I'm, we're going to give each of you five or six minutes of the film. You need to score it and bring it back tomorrow. Wow. So we're like, okay. <laughs> so, Eva, she, you know, he's like, here are some themes that we've used. You don't have to use them. Just bring everything back tomorrow. And so we all went away with our couple minutes of the film, came back the next day with the music. That was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so leading on, we we your most recent film, Chronicle twenty sixty seven. Alex and I had the opportunity to sit and watch it. I think we, we've watched it a few times now. Um, I I really really enjoyed the movie. And 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 Alex and I were were messaging as we were as we were both watching. We kind of both watched it um on on Amazon. And we kind of went through. And I, and I'd love to mm-hmm. talk because because you you were fully you were in control. And it was it was the it was the Macedonia mm-hmm. Symphony Orchestra that obviously you were working with yeah. creating that sound world and stuff for the movie um what can you give us i mean give us a full in-depth what was your experience like with working on that movie the it's the best thing i've ever done in my life the very best thing so um i was introduced to the director seth i had done a movie before that called the furies which was a horror film here in australia the furies was Mm. my first australian Mm. film it was a sort of a cult horror film and through the producer of that film lisa shaughnessy um, she said, uh, you know, my husband is working on a sci-fi film. I think you, you guys should meet. I think you would hit it off. And so when Seth and I met for the first time, it was like, it was like bromance heaven. You know, and it's like, oh, we were brilliant. Just, I love, I'm a huge, you know, I mean, I'm a huge sci-fi geek, huge. I mean, I've seen every episode of the first <laughs> Star Trek multiple times. I used to own an actual Star Trek uniform. I mean, that's how... Do you know oh, what I mean? Fantastic. Not only did I have a, a lightsaber, yeah, yeah, but I had a Star Trek uniform <laughs> with a, you know, NCC 1701, you know, all of it. All, I mean, Amazing. yeah, I was a huge science fiction, huge science fiction fan, as was Seth. And so we were just sci-fi geeking out about everything. And, um, and so this is about a year before the movie was shot. They'd already gotten funding. And so then I started doing some demos for him. And, so, and, you know, mm-hmm. we talked about music and there were a lot of some pieces that he liked. He was really into Hans Zimmer's score for Dunkirk. He really liked um, mm-hmm. the Max Richter's piece on the nature of daylight. Were just some ideas, Blade Runner, the, the original Blade Runner the, and the late Blade Runner. So there's just some, some points of, mm-hmm. you know, he definitely wanted dystopian big, but he said big orchestra, you know. Right. And really. it was so great because... It's very rare in film you get to do the big orchestra thing. Very, very rare. Because he said, he said originally, he said, I just want the music right out. I want it loud, over the top, and right out front of the film. He said, That's fantastic. That's, that's definitely mm-hmm. something, one of the first things I picked up on while watching, while watching the movie. Yeah, definitely. Was that the music was so, so present yep. in the mix. Absolutely. Yeah, he he wanted it. Yeah, he wanted it wall to wall. He wanted wall to wall music beginning to end no break.
the, the, the tracks that I was really drawn to, I mean, particularly the, the tracks that I really enjoyed was Breathe. I thought Breathe, and there was a couple of opportunities where Breathe yeah. came up in the movie, um, you know, sort of when he makes the choice to sacrifice mm-hmm. himself. And so, spoilers, everyone, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the movie. <laughs> uh, so it makes the makes sacrifice to, to flip the switch. Um, and, and, you know, No Cure, I thought that was, that there was a really good time where when they were using it to escape, you know, on the track, the, tr- the truth revealed being played at the kind of the beautiful vibrato. I, I thought there was just really excellent choices that, that went through through it. a script and then create a melody um, or, and that you think will suit the, the, the story and then you kind of just feel you, when you've done your job, when you've put, put forward your, your expression of the scene, do you ever find yourself kind of going, well, I guess I'm just going to have to cross my fingers and hope that all the other parts of the film kind of come into play, whether it's the CGI or the acting or the sound production or the mixing? Do you ever kind of think that, like, I've done my bit, I hope everyone else delivers on their bits almost? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say, but most of the time what happens is I, I think to myself, I I really have delivered on my end. I don't think anybody, I'm not sure mm. how much anyone else is going to deliver but on mm. this on this film man everybody everybody really 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 delivered i mean it was incredible because oh, i definitely. didn't see uh, most of the cgi and stuff didn't get put in until after the score was finished and recorded and put in i mean that was like w- the la- i'll never forget i mean while we while we were doing the sound mix i i'd stayed with um seth and and lisa they live in sydney so we, I stayed with them in Sydney. So while we're doing the final sound mix, I was also making, I was also doing the end credits music while Seth was, Seth is, Seth's background is CGI. He was doing the CGI, the last effects while I was doing end credits music while we're already going to the sound mix and it's supposed to be done. So it was really, yeah, it was really, really, really <laughs> incredible. One of the things that I found really kind of cool about the opportunity, I mean, Seth is just brilliant, number one, and he's great, great, great to mm. work with is he didn't want any sound design in the film. He wanted all the sound design to be in the music. So if you listen, you'll notice that most of it is in the music, but not in the, you know. So that's Mm. why when you listen to the soundtrack, there's a lot of atmosphere around the orchestra because there's nothing else. There's no other sounds. He wanted the sound design to be, you know, part of the music, which I thought was a really... A really great choice. I mean, it's it's so it's you're just the whole. I mean, it's so great as a composer. You're the entire sound world of the film. It's not like we need to bring the music down so we can hear this, that, or or we need the ambience. You know, it's just like it's you. It's your whole thing. This was definitely something that I picked on to, to picked up on to the to the extent that I couldn't help thinking that the music was so tight tightly bound 
to the drama that was happening on screen and like just the beats and stuff it was almost interwoven i couldn't possibly think that oh the film happened and then you were given the task to score it i must have thought that it was more of a collaboration than that oh yeah it's, i mean seth was seth was tough there were there were a couple so when i did the demos i read the script and i got shown some artwork you know um and then i just went off and did demos mm -hmm on some things i think i think the breathe track was one of the demos that i did the opening um mm. yeah the, the, those all came those all came from demos now seth was really really particular about how all the beats emotionally should work i mean so it was nice because most mm. a lot of times you don't get to do that anymore because scores generally sit more in the background and provide more mood than i do you know shift from here to here to here i mean that's that's much more of an old school Talking about John Williams, that's more of an old school sort of thing. Like, you know, if you think about sort of the the end scene from E.T. with Elliot, you know what I mean? There's so oh, many yeah. different beats and moves, and then it pushes, and then he gets sad, then there's cry, then there's the elation of of him being returned home, the melancholy. You know, what I mean, all those things. So it was. Yeah, it was you can nice. hear you can hear the movie in the music. Like, if you just sit yeah. sit with the music, you can just see the movie going going through and that was yep. definitely the impression that i got here also yeah yeah i mean it was really 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 tightly synced, very very tight sync it's so funny because i had done an entire draft i did a draft of the entire score and seth was like mm. and i only kept about a third of it mm -hmm. and then i had to start all over again wow yeah, really yeah yeah so it's not Goodness. so it's not by any stretch of imagination just like magic it just kind of comes out per no that whole draft you know yeah, I like this and this and you know, but yeah, you could do. And what do you do with the what do you do with the leftover stuff? I mean, the stuff that doesn't make the cut is that something that you take away that you can you repurpose, could. or do you do you do you do you not? I mean, because obviously, um, from you read when a composer goes, well, they've repurposed pieces from previous mm -hmm. films that they've done. You know, when you talk of Hans yeah. Zimmer, for example, he likes to kind of do that. Is that something that you do? Do you kind of have a vault almost that you put things in and you go, hey, maybe we can have an opportunity to do this again if there's another another Sometimes. chance that yeah, I can yeah. uh, that I can use yeah, yeah. this? Yeah, I keep. I just I don't I don't put it in a specific folder, but I keep things in mind, like because I like the way I like to work is doing a lot of demos before the film. And most of the time, only a quarter of them make it into the film. So you've got three quarters of stuff that's pretty good, but just not right for that movie. So a lot of times I'll, I'll repurpose that for other demos, you know what I mean, for other kinds of demos. This one is hard because you don't get these kinds of movies. Like, for example, for a horror movie. So you make a horror demo, they like a quarter, three quarters they don't use. So for another horror movie, it's the other three quarters are pretty close. You know what I mean? But to an epic science fiction, it, does, it happens so rarely. You know, that you don't get a... And one, one of the things that I really like so much about this particular... Because in a lot of ways, this score... This, not in a lot of ways. This score... Doing this score changed my life. I, I am not the same mm. artist as I was, you know, because this is the very first time that I got to just be unleashed on the film and do my thing, which is... I mean, even... I like the, you know, the... Callum, you mentioned the truth revealed, you know, just the counterpoint. You know, I mean, I got yeah. to do my orchestra thing, which is lots of really cool counterpoint and i mean you don't get to do you know in a big massive texture i i love doing sound design i like programming i like creating sounds so it's very rare you get to bring those sort of things together because in the in the truth revealed it's really interesting it's the um it's the actually it's the opening theme of the movie which is da -dee, da -dee, da -dum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but in truth mm -hmm. revealed 
it's I, I do something a, a technique that was very very common you know in, in composers like especially like in Bach and earlier uh, called a canon which is it repeats in various voices mm -hmm. but what I've done in that one it's it's what's called a prolation canon it repeats in different time resolutions so what's happening is 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 the strings are going da di da di da da di dum and then there's another group another group doing twice as slow da di da di and then there's a group going da di da di da di da da di da di da di da da and there's a bottom part that's that's doing it every whole note so you've got you've got all different variations of versions of the same thing because counterpoint is something I love and I'm absolutely obsessed 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 with so it was so great to be able to do that in a film so great. I had to sort of really listen very, very carefully to work out what was orchestral and what was electronic, is what you said about creating sounds. And I think, I, I suspect that more of it was orchestral than not. I, I got this huge orchestral sound, but then it was still very much... Uh, a science fiction vibe with very otherworldly sounds that aren't necessarily natural to our sensibilities almost. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I made a lot of oh, sense absolutely. there, but absolutely. Look, one of the things it, it's it's a really interesting thing is as as you get older and sort of develop, you know, I can only speak of developing artistically. Because when I was writing a lot of concert orchestra music, there was something that I couldn't quite get at and I didn't know what it was that suddenly when I heard film orchestras, they had it. Because I, I was writing a lot of live music for concerts and stuff, and then the orchestra sounded great, but they didn't sound big enough. You know, like when you go mm. to the theater, I mean, look and listen to any of Hans's scores, it's freaking huge, like Pirates of the Caribbean. That yeah, is not yeah, what it, yeah, you know, yeah. he, you know you, even if you go hear, you know, the, the London Philharmonic play Pirates of the Caribbean, it doesn't sound like that, you know, that there's this, this enhanced orchestra. Mm. And so I had this really incredible opportunity to study with Alan Meyerson, who's Hans's score mixer. And so Alan, oh, yeah, yeah, really Alan wild. is the one who really turned me around to how to get that sound. Because that's what I've always been looking for, even before I went to film scores, that big orchestra on steroids sound. You know, and so much of it is, of course, live mm. orchestra, but a lot of the thickness is coming from synthesizers that are giving a lot of weight and body to it. And also a lot of it is is tons of different kinds of multi-tracking of the orchestra that you could never do live and things. And it's also processing of the orchestra. So the orchestra does a pass and then you time stretch it. So that's another layer that you're hearing. So a lot of the a lot of it keeps it an orchestra-ness sounding thing because you're using a lot of sounds that are derived from natural sound. Not I mean, because this is also the thing, the part part this is what I the kind of sound design I think is interesting that you'll hear in that score is that it's sound design, but it feels sort of organic and not so electronic. There's a little bit of electronic because mm. you have to, because to give it the dystopian vibe, you know, mm -hmm. but especially in the second mm. half of the film when there's less dystopian vibe, you know, you can hear things that are sound design, but they feel kind of organic in some sort of strange way. And it's, you know, taking natural sounds or instruments and pitch shifting them, time stretching them, you know, running them through sort of granular synthesis, but all kinds of things to get really, really sort of, you know, cool, cool, cool sounds.
I think the grandiose sound, you know, particularly in the track Path to Resolution, it, it really shows, you know, you, you listen to it and you go, this is a hugely yeah. epic track that you've that you've really thrown you know this is a this is thrown everything at and, and i and i you know so you talk of creating that grandiose yeah. sound like that's that's Absolutely. it there isn't it yeah, it's yeah i mean to be able to go that big was just <laughs> amazing it's just it's mm. just it's just incredible and it's also just you know also to be able to work on such a great film at the same time you know i mean being connected to the film emotionally that it all makes sense is really really it's just an mm, amazing mm. opportunity because then it becomes, I mean, of course, that influences the decisions you make. Now, I don't know. Here, here's, here's a little thing that, that you may have noticed but may not. But the, the movie opens with the theme on the synth theme. Da -dee -da -dee -da -da. That's actually mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. CS80 that, that they use in Blade Runner. Really? That, as in, oh, as really? in the same synth kind of yeah, sound, this, yeah, yeah, the this, same... Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's the yeah. that's the classic Vangelis CS80, Yamaha CS80. Oh, fantastic. So, so there's all oh, these so, I love yeah, facts like that. Just, I love that. So there's all, you know, it's all there's all like little nods, you know, certainly yeah. little so nods. So was that to, was that decision made as a kind of homage to the genre Yes, then? of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. I was going to yeah, that's I was like, uh when when as I started to explore that theme, I was like, uh I got to open it with the you can't just use any synth, man. You got to use the Blade Runner synth, you know. Yeah. Science, so oh, it's just a little cool. Exactly. So that's, you know, and part of it, I think, unconsciously, when you when you watch the movie, because it opens, you don't see anything, but you hear the music playing. But when you see that, when you hear that synth, mm. you know it's a science fiction. You know what I mean? There's something about yeah. when it opens with that synth sound. You're so right. Because it could have been a horn or violins, right? It could have been, but mm -hmm. something yeah. like, oh, this is a science fiction film. And that's why, because there's a lot... There's a lot of metaphor that I use in, like, for example, the, 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 the opening, all that opening music, the idea of the evolution of that particular piece of music is a microcosm of the arc of the entire film, which is that it starts very mm -hmm. dystopian. You've got the synths, and then it opens up to this really broad orchestral sound, you know what I mean? This really sort of broad orchestral sound that sort of, you know, that eventually tapers off. But, mm -hmm, but to me, it was mm -hmm. sort of a microcosm of the... I mean, because these, these are the sort of things structurally that I'm very interested in because film scores generally can either be symphonies or albums, meaning sets of songs. You know, so sure. I'm, I'm much more interested from, from my background. I'm not interested in songs. I'm interested in, in symphonies where there's motivic connection. You know what I mean? That, that it, it's, it's more than just a me mechanical... Making a symphony is more than just... Creating a symphony is more than just a mechanical themes come back. That's that's not what makes great symphonies. Ideas that are expressed in mm. the beginning already outline the form of the work as it go as you know as it as it goes forward. You know, um, mm. so those those sorts of things I'm really really interested, and that's why I said about the counterpoint because that's interesting to me to have the main theme then bury itself mm. on various levels, having the opening track being a microcosm of the evolution of the entire film in the you know those. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things I'm really, really interested in. And and I and I guess I don't know if you can say or not. Are you are you working on any films upcoming? Have you got any other future projects that you're looking to try and work on in maybe different areas of, of film composing or scoring? Right now, right now I've got um a horror I can't talk about. It. There's a horror film <laughs> that I'm that I'm that okay. I'm, that has not been announced yet that I'm working on. But actually what's and then and then of course because COVID has pushed everything back. 
Yeah, you of know, course. So, all, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. everything that was supposed to start now is not starting till next year, and I have, you know, a bunch of things sure. that that will start in the upcoming year. But the interesting thing that's that's happened is in the aftermath of 2067, because also um, it was it, it was really great to that the film make film film music magazine had Daniel Schweiger called you know entered it as as one of the most the, his favorite scores of 2020 overall which oh, was wonderful. really because i'm a big fan of just his you know film music critique so just yeah. to be acknowledged mm-hmm. and put it in his list of the best scores of 2020 was really really um very touching you know very touching but what happened in the writing of that of writing of the film score for me artistically is i got back in touch with the kind of music that i write outside of films and and with sort of the pause with covid so i've gotten back to writing a lot of just music for myself i'm not music for myself music that's going to be released on a um a european na- uh, label called nescape that a friend of mine runs um which is sort of hybrid orchestra ambient so it's really the artistic journey has been very very interesting for me because i'm coming back to writing my own music but just with all this experience in engineering sound design that I didn't have when I wrote concert music back in the days. And so I'm writing a kind of, because these, 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 I wouldn't call it concert music because they can't be performed. It's recorded orchestra kind of music, like film, film music like, but they're concert pieces sure. to be listened to, not, yeah. not necessarily against, you know, against moving image, that I'm just finding a whole like, style of music inside of that with things that I'm interested in developmentally that I, you can't quite do in, in a film score. So I'm just... I, I mean, I, I've got like, you know, 15, 15 unfinished pieces. So I'm going to start, you know what I mean? So I'm setting up my recordings and this, the record label wants to release them. But just I'm on this I'm on this path of sort of writing stuff that I'm just really, really interested in on writing. And I, and I think a lot of it, as I sort of reflect back, you know, on my career as a film composer and also it's sort of at this stage of life, I'm more interested in doing films that I want to do. If that makes sense, you know, because mm. for a long time, I just mm-hmm. I mean, I was doing five, six, seven films a year, you know, because I've been on sort mm. of the treadmill of perpetual films probably for 15 years at least, you know, a back to back and and having this space and be able to to develop myself artistically in other directions that would work fine for some films. And you know what I mean? And and not not for all films, but more niche kind of films. So some of it artistically, I'm thinking like, you know, do I want to go back? Do do I really want to score another romantic comedy? You yeah. Know I mean, do I want to score another sort of lifetime drama? You know, or do I want to be spending my time writing the music that that I think is important to write? Because because that 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 music, and this is the thing that that I find kind of interesting because that the two twenty sixty seven score is only a sc- This is I don't I don't mean to sound. Uh, this is not in a narcissistic way, but the the important mm. thing about the 2067 score is only I could have written that, because I mean, just mm. like you know, I mean, mm. people can do things that sound kind of like parts of it, but the totality of the way mm. the counterpoint is work, and especially as you know, I know you guys are fans of the end credit music, the way that the that same two part mm. canon and do you know what I mean? It's the way yeah. the counterpoint yeah. stuff works. You got to be highly, highly trained for that. And this is just, and, and what the 2067 yeah. score did is just sort of open up a window into a world of, of music that only I can write. 
you know but it's not narcissistic it makes perfect sense though because it's 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 your reflection of you and your interpretation of it and stuff so it makes total sense actually what you're saying and and you you because you really have invested a lot of your love and obviously a lot you know as we've chatted a lot of the little things that have come through here you know your love of sci-fi your love of making sure that you really put a lot of effort you know effort into trying to make sure that you want to really emphasize certain parts of a track like that all makes perfect sense um so it does make sense hearing hearing you say that you know yeah that that is only something that you could have yeah, done. So, that, so artistically, that's what I'm interested in this point of my life, is writing music mm. that only I could have done, you know? And, mm. and, and again, it, it, it's, it's reconnecting with something from my past, music that, concert music, romantic concert music that I used to write, but bringing with it that whole sound palette of film that I've gotten just really good at, you know what I mean? And those two, and it's really, to, to me, just artistically, those two things coming together is just, has just opened up a, a completely new world for me creatively. So for me, I'm just really into the work that I'm doing now. If it can be used in film, that's great. You know, if a great film comes along and, and this sort of thing where, you know what I mean? The sort of thing that I'm doing works for that film, then mm-hmm. great. I'm not sure, but anything outside of that, I think I'm going to stick with the with the path that I'm doing now. And it's, of course, this horror film that I'm working on that I can't talk about, I really love. Oh yes, well you definitely, you've <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. piqued really, our interest. Yeah, we're, gonna that. To, we're gonna have to, yeah, <laughs> so. we're gonna have to get yeah. you back on, I'm sure. And finally, Ken, t- tying it all together, you're uh, obviously your education with the, with your jazz scene and 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 education in, in terms of film score and 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 uh, symphony orchestras has, has been a, a huge part of your life and i guess the common thread has been mentoring and, and to an extent and stuff and so you you know you you obviously f- um, f- found time to work work in the australian national university school mm-hmm. of music in in canberra c- c- give us give us i mean what 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 was what was that like where did you where did you find the school where did you find um i guess i mean i'd also find the time between if you're working through all your film scores and stuff and 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 what does that mean to you it's an interesting question as one sort of reflects on one's life i would say that Mm. the the core theme of my life is bringing music into bringing music into the world either through myself or through other people so that's the running mm. theme of my life is is someone who brings music into the world because I think music is something that's divine and exists in another world and that there are few of us who are conduits who bring it into this world. And I bring that in, into the world through my own music also and also through teaching others to bring it into the world, which I'm very, mm. very, very proud of. And I'm also very interested in it. Now, a, a lot of times um, I'm interested in it for a number of reasons. One, I'm fascinated by pedagogy. So there's there's, of course, you know, Everybody likes being with the kids and stuff, and that's really, really fun. But I'm fascinated with the pedagogy, and one of the things that's been a mission of mine is all the pedagogy of writing romantic, tonal, diatonic, melodic-driven music, all that pedagogy has been lost. That's not taught anymore. When you go to, the, when you go to university and study composition, it's all avant-garde. Mm-hmm. You know, and then mm-hmm. all that stuff, you don't learn how to write a melody, you know, what I mean, how to put a chord progression together, because that's all old music or commercial music. So you're expected to come up with some new avant garde break because it's all the universities and education system in composition is all about being outside of the box without ever teaching everyone how to be in the box. Well, in order to sure. understand the principles that that one needs. So whole whole generations of pedagogy have been discarded. And so part of what I had to do is because I was brought up in, in the classical tradition that I was brought up, it was the avant-garde, what was called 12-tone music, serialism, atonality, you know, which was following on the music of Schoenberg, Berg, and Webern, um, 
and, and moving into the European avant-garde. That's what I was taught when I went to university. And I, and I like that music, and I write that music well, but I was much more interested in romantic music, and no one could teach. No one knew how to do it, and no one could teach it. And so I spent a lot of my time reading a lot of pedagogical material back from you know, 14th century Zarlino talking about how to write motets for the church, you know, and the rules of counterpoint to, mm. you know, there's a great books. Like I know what, I know what Be- Be- Beethoven studied with Haydn. Like what did they work on? I, I have examples of those counterpoint exercises. Like I know, you know, like what did Mozart learn? What did he teach? What did Handel learn? What did he teach? I have mm. an incredible book on boxed, that very, very few is a very limited print. There's a guy named Kernberger who was one of J.S. Bach's students who actually wrote a, a book on Bach's method of teaching. So, I mean, these sort of things are really int- very, very interesting to me. So these are things that I get to actually bring back to university teaching, but I get to do it through film scoring where it's okay because if I was a composition teacher, I wouldn't be allowed to teach those things. But being that film music is and video game music is melodic and makes use of all the elements of those things – because to me, the, the film, and, film and video game music are the romantic tradition of classical music. When you go to school, you're taught that, you know, the, that you're taught about music history is the evolution of harmonic complexity, that it starts with a single line Gregorian chants in the Middle Ages, then to polyphonic music mm. of the Renaissance, then the diatonic major minor system in the Baroque era, then all, everything is formalized, the structures and instruments are formalized in the classical era, all the systems of harmony, then a little chromaticism introduced in the Romantic era. Then after the Romantic era in the 20th century, everything is fully chromatic. So it's looked at as, you know, and that's that's the history. And now we live in an age where it's fully chromatic and avant-garde. But the Romantic tr- tradition, actually, that di- it didn't die away, but it continued in Hollywood. It split because all the early film composers, Max Steiner, Korngold, were both students of Mahler. You know, mm-hmm. and certainly John, and then their tradition continued through John Williams and in a lot of ways through composers even like Hans Zimmer. Um, so the romantic tradition is alive and well. So that's what I teach. So I feel like I get to teach all the great music that I love. You know, so that's, that's why the teaching of film music is also when I was in school, film music was looked down upon. You, there, was, there was no, in the 80s, there was nowhere to, you couldn't study film music. You know, but the idea that's mm-hmm. accepted as a university on the university level is really, really important. So I feel as an advocate of that and um, as someone who has a love, a great and deep love of pedagogy as I do, because I've taught for a very, very, very long time. At first I taught piano lessons just because I needed money, but then it's, I've logged in, I mean, tens of thousands of hours teaching. So understanding the neurological process that goes on with teaching, like how fast to introduce new material to what age groups, you know, depending on the brain development. So those are things that I'm very, very just keen on because, of course, my studying of psychology and, and biology the same way, the way that, that neurology works and at different ages, what can be introduced when and how fast, even up to the level, even though I don't teach as much young kids now as, as university students, but, that, but I have to say young kids are much, much more fun to teach mm-hmm. than the university yeah. students because <laughs> one of the, the big challenges on the university level is the love of music has been crushed out of them by that time, by too, too much testing and evaluating and assessment, that, th- that very few of them have the love of music that they once had when they were a kid because the education system just grinds it out of them. So one of the things I do, st- I still occasionally have kids that I teach, and I love it because they love music the way that I love music. You know, it's like, oh, my God. Like, you show them, like, a chord progression. Like, oh, my God, that's the best thing ever. I'm like, right? They're like, oh, cool, you can do this. I'm like, yeah, right. Oh, my God. So that's how our, le- you know, 
you know, and then you show stuff and everybody's jaded by the time they're, they're 18 in the university. They're like too cool to, they don't appreciate, you know what I mean? They don't love it, love it as much. So, so much on the university level is getting, rekindling their love of music that they once had is, you know, through childhood. What brought me to ANU was actually an opportunity to design the School of Music. So, which was a really mm -hmm. incredible opportunity that um, they just wanted to reboot. And so I have, again, a lot of experience in pedagogy, and I've designed in my other university. After I left Juilliard, I taught at a school called Hofstra University in Long Island, and I developed a music business technology program there. So then I was sort of facile with developing curriculum and not just pedagogy, but now is about to sort of roll that out because that's a creative thing. Teaching is creative. Pedagogy mm -hmm. is creative. Curriculum design is a – I see it as a creative thing. Mm -hmm. um, and more often than mm -hmm. not, it's designed by not creative people in that area. It's very few people who are actually creative and visionary in that area. So I thought, how great to roll out an entire school of music that's different than any kind of school of music in the world. I mean, so the, the ANU School of Music, because one of the things that I was seeing is that educationally, everything is modeled after the 19th century conservatory to this day. You know, like Juilliard, Royal College of Music, Paris Conservatory, everybody models that model, which, you know, it certainly made sense a hundred years ago, makes less sense now, and it makes even less sense in Australia than any other place in the world because, you know, to have a Juilliard school in New York, yeah, well, there's, you know, seven professional orchestras in New York. You've got Broadway shows. So to be a harp player mm -hmm. or a viola player, and there's orchestras all over the country, or or being in, you know, Paris, going to the Paris Conservatory and studying viola. There's 10,000 orchestras across Europe. There's, you know, there's a lot of work, but to have that in Australia where there's only like five orchestras seemed ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But we're in, a, mm -hmm. we're, in a, we're in a place now because all the focus of conservatory training is in live performance. And we, we just don't mm -hmm. live in an age where live performance is the med mode of dissemination for music. Recording is the mode of all musics are, um, are, are distributed through recording. Recording is the heart of everything. Mm -hmm. Much, much, much. It's, it's the, recording is the means of distribution in a way that, that, that public concerts are not. They just aren't. Now, mm. learning performance for recording is very important, and I'm not saying that performing is not important, but you need to train students to what actually the musical landscape is. So I call it the 21st century music, uh, 21st century music program, where recording is the heart of everything. Because all other conservatories around the mm. world, everything is genre-specific. You've got, you know, you either come in on a track, classical violin or jazz saxophone or audio engineering. So you don't touch a recording studio unless you're an audio engineering major. If you're a classical violin major, there's no composition classes for you. But the idea that the 21st century music, musician needs to be fluid in recording, uh, digital audio workflow, and also in composing. So our, you know, our program at mm. ANU, we have the same sort of tracks if you just want to study classical piano or jazz saxophone, but you also have a horizontal motion too that every student can take film scoring. Music technology is mandatory for all students. You know, they can take recording, mixing. Mm. So because th this is, you know, what I see in terms of my friends at Juilliard who's, you know, who are the best examples of um, performers who are, who are very, very successful in making a living. My, a good friend of mine, Dave Agar, is probably the most in-demand studio cellist in the U.S. He, you know, he, he's the guy who played Viva La Vida of Coldplay among, you know, played with Farner, oh, really, every yeah. Cole, all the Coldplay records, Evanescence, you know, and then next week he's doing, you know, Elgar Cello Concerto. Mm -hmm. You know, he's constantly recording. Mm -hmm. my, same with my friend John Dinklage, who's the concert master on Hamilton. Does tons of recording. He's got oh, a whole wow. great business, and he, and he does a lot of Hollywood film score recording, just solo violin from his house. 
Like, so these are the people, and these guys go on the road, they do recording studios, they play concerts, they record, but that, that to me is uh, what the 21st century musician does, you know, and, and the same, both those guys mm. compose, you know, maybe composition isn't their main thing, you know, they compose, David is, David's is a very, very good composer, but they do arrangements, you know, mm. some will say, uh, Dave, just make me string arrangements to this rock song, great, he's got it arranged, same with John, they both do that, <laughs> so this mm -hmm. is the sort of career path that I think is really, really important for the the 21st century musician is to be across not just performing on an instrument, but across recording technology and composition. And, and also for the composers, you, you can't just sort of sit in your room, you know, writing music and, you know, hopefully that the world's going to like it. You need to be out there playing, being involved in multimedia. I think all composers should be involved in multimedia composition because it's such just a huge and interesting mm. industry that, you know, really has more impact. The film industry has much more impact culturally than the classical composition, you know, culture. So these are all, you know, mm. I think th things that I've put together a really unique kind of program at the Australian National University. And so that's why, that's that was the reason that I came to Australia was to put that program in place. It's hugely and wildly successful. So I ran the program for a couple of years. <laughs> and now the, the end game for me was always to have a film and video game composition program that I ran. So that's mm. why I started that mm. when I was, you know, designing and running the school, and now that's what I teach. And you're still there. You're still in Australia. I you, love you, it. You yeah, yeah, I love, love it here. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, dude, are you kidding me? I love <laughs> it, love it, love it, love it here. It's great. It's got a great film industry, great video game industry. Amazing. You know, uh, it's awesome here. Ken, I love it. it was it was absolutely wonderful to sit down and chat to you, and and I. You know, I'm sp speaking on on behalf of on behalf of both of us that that it, it's been fantastic to kind of take to take for you to take us through your life and take us through the experiences that you've had and I you know and talk about film and film music scores and stuff because as I'm sure Alex will you know Alex will agree that's just the thing that we are so passionate about. Absolutely, we start we started this with with that in mind and honestly, like I feel like there's so much more that we wish we could have asked you, but. Let's have you back yeah. for this secret horror movie. Yeah, I let's, love let's do that. it. Let's would do love it that. That would be great. And I, look, I also really appreciate you guys having me on the show. And look, it's always heartwarming when someone takes interest in your work. So I really appreciate your your enthusiasm to my work. Thanks. Uh, honestly, thanks so much, Ken. Well, there you have it. I mean, that was that's absolutely fantastic. And and we were we were sat up. We we won't lie. I mean, Ken was obviously recording from Australia, and so we were up till quite late. Yeah, but it, it was a bit of a late one. It was not going to lie. It was a late one. But to be honest, it was totally worth it because we finished and then we phoned each other after. And we went. That was just fantastic. Like the both of us were like, we had so many questions, but he, he just told some amazing stories. I know and, there could have been so much more, but. What, but what we got was absolutely incredible. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed every minute. Now, Alex, what do they have to do now? Now they've got to get themselves onto the Apple podcast and mm. really smash up those stars mm. right the way up to <laughs> five stars. Absolutely. Brilliant. And write a little review. Mm -hmm. Say how much you enjoyed listening to Ken. Oh, we'd love that. Do that. Do that. Yeah. Tell us your favorite movie. Tell us your favorite soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And you can also listen to us on Spotify. Yes, very, lots very of, good. <laughs> lots of other places. <laughs> because you, you're you a big fan of the Spotify listens, aren't you, Alex? You often <laughs> yes. sort of lament about the Spotify I'm on, I'm, on the, I'm on those analytics all the time. <laughs> you can't pull me away from the Spotify analytics. No, uh, 
Also, anywhere else you like listen to your podcast, we're there. Mm. Probably. We, yeah. I haven't checked all of them. Most likely. Apparently Amazon do stuff. We should probably get into the whole Amazon stuff. I think, I think we are on Amazon. Yeah, I, think I think I've you... checked. Oh, we are on Amazon, are we? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, uh, enjoy us on Amazon for our Amazon listeners. Once again, a special shout out to KTC Graphic Design for our fabulous new artwork. We also have an email address, which is motionspod at gmail.com. And please do write in if you have any other requests or if you indeed are a very, very famous, multi-talented music score composer who would like to come on and tell us about your latest film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, until then, next week, Alex, do we know what we're going to do? Oh, I don't know. I I had some ideas. I had some ideas. I'm wondering if I should should go through them with you off the air. We could do that. We could do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think we've got a few in the hat already from the email. So let's let's discuss then. Of course, until we do that. But until then, thank you very much for listening. And we will speak to you again next week. Bye now. All right, guys. Ta-ta.